1: Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikirska, and this is a show dedicated to helping small businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. Now, I am joined, as per usual, by Mark Satov. He is a strategy expert and founder of Satov Consultants, and he's here to help us find solutions and ideas for businesses as they grapple with the pandemic. Mark, welcome back to the show.
0: It's great to be here. You know, we're at an interesting time. We'll talk about the reopening and we'll talk about some of the challenges that we see businesses facing. So I'm looking forward to getting into the issues.
1: Yeah, definitely. And just a reminder to everybody that's tuning in, if you have a question or if you have feedback or are a business owner that wants to tell us about your story, you can email me at alicia at yahoofinance.com. That's A-L-I-C-J-A at yahoofinance.com. Now, Mark, let's kick off the show the way we always do, and that's by discussing the top stories of the day. And I think we need to talk about the reopening of the rest of Ontario's economy. Yesterday, Ontario Premier Doug Ford announced that Toronto and Peel will be joining uh, and reopening into Stage 2 as of tomorrow. Windsor-Essex is the only one that is actually still in Stage 1, but we will dig into that in a second. But looking at the reopening, this is obviously good news for business owners, a lot of business owners in the GTA. But do you think it's going to make a a huge impact for their operations? What do you what do you make of this? Uh, Oh,
0: I think definitely. I think we see more and more uh, that people are comfortable uh, out going shopping. And it seems like Uh, and we'll talk about this in a couple of different contexts during the show today, it seems like people are trying to almost forget and sort of say, well, this is really, okay, we're back to normal, thank goodness, and we can go back to our lives. And I think the balancing act that our leaders have to play Uh, is to get the messaging just right. And so you sort of want to get people to relax a little bit because we do want to reduce anxiety and we need to get the economy going. Uh, But we sort of still need to keep control. And so uh, we want to make sure that people are doing the right things. We want to make sure that people are safe. And even if you just look at it economically, uh, you want to make sure that we don't go too far because it would be better to not have to close down again, and so uh, I think I think the the challenge is all sort of finding that exact right uh, right point for people to be.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, what do you make of the timing? Just out of curiosity, do you think that, um, particularly when we look at the GTA, that this came too late? Did it come too soon? Because I know that there is some debate on that, and, and business owners especially have obviously been keen to reopen.
0: It's hard for me to say exactly what's too late and too early. You know, I look at the curves every day, as I'm sure you do, and I'm anxious to see the Ontario numbers and and then the Quebec numbers, which are most of the Canadian numbers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you look at the Canadian curve and you compare it to other countries, uh, you sort of say, okay, well, it's interesting. You know, it's kind of Canadian. It never went up that sharply, and it's also coming down sort of nice and easy, not sharply. And uh, (laughs) I, I, I was sort of... I sort of naturally would wish that it would come down more sharply and we'd have more confidence because we do still have, like today went back up, I'm sure you saw it, 216 cases. That's not nothing given that most of them are in Toronto. And so you think about it, it's a probability thing. There is some probability that you, depending on what area you live in, that you encounter somebody who has it and there's some risk there. Uh, I think the reality is that, and I've said it before, we could not contain people that much longer anyway because I, I do believe there's a mental health issue. I do believe we have isolation issues and the sort of mental health st- uh, uh, version of the word, I would say. And so I do think we had to, and it's about, you know, how much you do it and also what the safety measures are around it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll be seeing what, uh, definitely watching the numbers to see what kind of impact the different, the reopenings, as well as, you know, the bubbling that we've been seeing and allowing people, especially in Ontario, to... Uh, expand their circles quite a bit. For sure. Um, But let's let's talk about what's happening in Windsor because they are now the sole jurisdiction in Ontario that is still in stage one, which is the strictest lockdown stage that we've had. And so arguably they are under the strictest lockdown in this entire country as we've seen more and more provinces advance through their own reopenings. Um, Premier Ford singled out um, farmers for not sending workers to get tested. And this comes... I mean, looking at Windsor's cases, as of Monday, of the 32 COVID cases that were reported, 31 were tied to farm workers. Mm-hmm. And this comes as Mexico uh, resumes sending temporary foreign workers to Canada. They had a brief pause on that um, as a result of, of many of the workers getting uh, cases of COVID, a few of them dying. And um, so as we as we look at the situation, I mean, and, and the worker protection, safety protections. What do you think needs to be done here?
0: There's a whole lot that needs to be done. I mean, what I don't know about the numbers is what percentage of that community is made up of farms. Uh, And so we have to be careful about saying, you know, 31 of 32 Mm -hmm. coming from farms without recognizing that, you know, a a good portion of what goes on around there uh, is farming. And so it'll always be disproportionately in some way uh, hitting that industry versus other industries just because that's where the population is. You know, I, I think I think we need to do the short answer is we need to do more. You know, I I think that uh, we we have to compartmentalize the issue and sort of say, okay, well, are these people getting sick because there's a chance that everybody gets sick and there's a probability we cannot guarantee anybody in any profession, in any facility that they're not going to get this virus and it just happens to be, or are they getting sick because we actually didn't do what we should do? And we have to remember that these are there are people who come to our country Uh, hardworking people. They do work we don't want to do. They do it in conditions that even when the conditions are legal and done properly, they're not conditions that we actually uh, really want to work under. And so for that, I mean, we pay them a wage, a fair wage, not an overly fair wage, but a fair wage. uh, And we owe them safety. And so, like I say, if, if they happen to get sick because you know, everybody can, can get sick and it's like, you know, you're coming to a country with a virus, you have to recognize there's a risk. Okay. But when you dig into it, you hear that, you know, you hear the stories, I'm sure you heard some of the same ones that I did about not getting access to a doctor or being forced to work despite being sick. And you know what, it's just not okay. And we are, we are an advanced country. We have a lot of systems. We have a bureaucracy. The role of the bureaucracy is to provide oversight on businesses. And I'm sure that mm-hmm. there are many farms uh, and businesses in that area who bring in workers and do the right thing. But, you know, when you have some that don't, and they have a big impact. And so I, I think the role uh, is oversight. I think the role is making sure that businesses are doing what they should and You know, we've done work uh, to look at what businesses are doing to keep people safe in lots of different industries. I don't think government needs to do anything specifically different other than the oversight, because it is clear from my research that it is possible in many different types of settings to find a way to keep people safe. And so with the right oversight. Mm
1: Yeah, I do think this has really sparked um, conversations just because uh, the sheer number of temporary foreign workers that we do have working in agriculture, I think it's something like 60,000 short-term foreign workers, predominantly from Latin America and the Caribbean, come to Canada each year, each year to plant and, and harvest crops. Um, do you think that there, you mentioned the government oversight, and do you think this is going to lead to to any kind of changes in terms of of regulations when it comes to safety of these workers?
0: I would hope so. I would, you know, generally speaking, uh, I, you know, safety is not my area of of great depth and expertise, but when you when when you see changes in safety regulation of all different types, they generally follow uh, a catastrophic a catastrophic event of one type or another right? You know, the old saying, don't close the barn door after the horse escapes. But that is generally what happens with safety regulations, because you want to prevent the next one. Uh, And so you'd have to expect that uh, there'd be a difference here. What I don't know enough about, which I'd be curious about is how much were safety regulations in place, but not being checked enough versus did Mm -hmm. we lack the oversight? Because again, when you hear about Uh, you know, some of the stories, and I listened to uh, a broadcast about some workers who were talking about how they were treated. And when they asked for a doctor, when they happened, I sort of said, how could that be? And so my reaction on that one was, it can't be that the law provides for that, that that is allowed under the law. It must be that inspections have not been as regular or that in general, we don't have enough inspection of the law. Again, I don't know enough to be able to answer, Mm -hmm. but that's what I would want to look into. Is it that the law is good, but we are not providing ample inspection and oversight of that law? Or is it that the actual law needs to change? But certainly, you know, if somebody is coming to this country, they need to be protected and they need to be protected, maybe not more than us, but they need to be protected the same as us, if they're working in, in our factories and in our, in our fields.
1: Mm -hmm. It's um, interesting that on the oversight and um, you know, whether inspections are happening, it reminds me of the conversation we're having about long-term care facilities where um, you know, it's about making sure that those there are inspections taking place and that standards of care are, are high, um, higher than they have been at a lot of places. Um, But one thing I did want to add about the, the, Situation that's happening in Windsor. What do you think of the businesses? I mean, some of them are just so frustrated right now, and um, I saw one piece in the Windsor Star that said they're outraged over the fact that they're still in phase in stage one of the reopening because of all this. I mean, what do they do now?
0: You know, it's one of the things I've been thinking about uh, during this whole crisis is when people are angry, who are they angry at? So in other words, are they angry at the situation and they recognize that the government may be actually making the right move and they're just they're just overall angry? And by the way, we're all a little bit you know anxious and angry. We all have a lot of negative emotions because we're all to some degree in a situation that we would rather not be in. You know, I consider myself to be one of the lucky ones, given my situation. But yet still, this is not comfortable. Uh, and so what I don't know is, are they saying, you know, this is terrible because you know, it's not fair that we're in this situation and the migrant workers uh, that were brought in by the farms, the farms actually did this to us, or are they saying that the government actually is penalizing those of us who actually have done everything right just because some of the people who live near us um, are, are acting wrong or have just have had bad outcomes? And I think, you know, the problem is, generally speaking, you have, to, you have to be angry at the situation because I think the government is not really making a mistake by staging the reopening. We have a large province. We have 14 million people. We have a very vast land area. And it does make sense to open up some
1: mm-hmm. and
0: wait for the others because the alternative is not opening everything up. The alternative is keeping everything closed. And I don't think they would want that. Right. And uh, so I think, I think, by the way, there's a psychological thing You know, nobody wants to be the only one. And I I think as sort of silly as that sounds, I think that's a part of it. You don't want to be the Mm -hmm. only community in Canada that is uh, that is closed. And by the way, they're right near the border. And so I I think, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think that situation will become interesting again when we talk about the border, because they also get a lot of revenue from being a border town or a border area. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about this, I think, later in the show when we talk Mm -hmm. about Canada U.S. relations. But the border is going to be closed for a while, and so in in many ways, they have some benefits from where they are. And I guess in a couple of uh, from a couple of perspectives, they have some negatives now.
1: Yeah. Um, just before we get to that topic about um, talking sure. about business with the United States, I do want to talk about. You mentioned the psychological aspect of this, um, and that's optimism about the economy. As we are seeing uh, reopenings, we are also seeing optimism return. There was a uh, Uh, Bloomberg Nano's Canadian Confidence Index, rolls right off the tongue, Uh, consumer confidence went up this week and it actually posted the largest gain uh, week over week since 2013. And it was also eight consecutive weeks of improved optimism about the economy. Um, So what do you you make of that? I guess it's not surprising considering where we were back in March.
0: It's not surprising. And I... uh... You know, one of the things I want to do as a, you know, as a leader and as a spokesperson in media, I want to try and have consistent stories when I tell, when I tell people my opinion. And it's been hard because you, you change your opinion so often because the data changes so often. And I don't think I would have predicted that I would be as optimistic today as I am relative to three weeks ago. And it's, uh, you know, from a health standpoint, I think I have a pretty realistic Uh, and somewhat somber view that we're going to be living with this virus for two years. But based on what I've seen in the last few weeks, including in my own business, it sort of seems like many people are shrugging this off. You know, obviously, we've talked about the fact the stock market may may have shrugged it off, and that's not, you know, an area of expertise specifically. But there there are a lot of businesses that are shrugging it off. And the more some businesses shrug it off, the more others are able to, because they shrug it off and spend. Uh, And so then, and then that confidence sort of you know, spreads everywhere. And so I think that
1: mm-hmm.
0: we need to be careful, because we need to be hopeful. We need to, I'll say, be happy about the things that are happening. So like in my business, we are busy again, we have lots of work to do, we're thrilled about that. Uh, we just need to keep in the back of our minds, the planning for the second wave, the planning for this is not going to be the way. It's kind of like in general, I mean this is just a microcosm, but when you're in a bull run, it's great, but just mm-hmm. remember it's going to end. And so this one again is is different because the time period is so short and so it actually may end again very soon. But I would say let's enjoy the fact uh, that business is good. I think that's driving consumer confidence. let's enjoy the fact that we have generally good results and let's remember to plan for the second wave, for the fact that things will not be this rosy, but yeah. now I'm happy.
1: Hope for the best, expect the worst kind of thing. Yeah, um, exactly. If you're just tuning in, I'm Alicia Sikarska. that's Mark Satov, and we are discussing um, small businesses and how they should be dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. Okay, Mark, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with. um, and so, Mark, let's dig into some of the issues that businesses are facing, and I want you to weigh in and, and give us your fix. The first one is that Canada-U.S. relationship that you mentioned. Um, it's, it's particularly in the news today, given that we're uh, seeing the talk about the aluminum tariffs potentially coming back. I'm having flashbacks to 2018 when we were covering NAFTA negotiations, but there's the potential that those get reimposed. But looking at businesses in Canada, because our economies are obviously so integrated, and for companies that you know have ties to the U.S. either through their supply chain or their customer base, what kind of advice do you give to them when during this time, given what we're seeing happening in that country? There's a lot going on. Um, what do you what do you tell your clients?
0: Oh, there's, there's, there's a lot to talk about here. Did you see the Harvey's ad uh, on TV over the last couple of days? I'm not sure if you saw that. They they did an advertisement about the fact that all their locations are in Canada. And it hmm. was it was one of these sort of, you know, we're proud to be just Canadian and Canadian owned. It, it wasn't as direct as that, but they just sort of made reference to it. I, I, I think one of the things we have to remember, and it's been a very challenging time for Canada-U.S. relations over the last few years for a lot of reasons, and I'll talk about them we need to remember that Americans are our best friends, you know, and we talked before the show. It's not just that I happen to know that some of my friends from the US watch the show. Americans are our best friends. Hello, thank
1: you for tuning in. Uh, Yeah,
0: and by the (laughs) way, thank you, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Americans are our best friends and they have been for a long, long time and they will be for a long, long time. Now, there are a lot of things that you may disagree about with your best friends. And if you are best friends, you should be able to disagree about a lot of things. And um, politics is one that we feel like we disagree with Americans more now or a subset of Americans more now than we used to. And uh, you need to sort of sort of the analogy I came up with is it's sort of like we have a best friend. But if so many Canadians don't like their leadership, there not all of us, but most of us, I think, don't like the leadership they have there in a lot of the decisions they're making. Well, that doesn't mean your best friend has changed. It means your best friend's in a bad mood. And you need to find a way to work through it. Because if you sort of say, well, you know, I don't like Trump and uh, I don't like the way they're handling this and I don't like the way they're handling the virus, I'm going to write them off. Well, that's a very short term move because you need to remember that uh, a lot of your American friends may not support what's going on. And even if they do, uh, that doesn't mean they're not friends of yours in a different way. So it's complex because you have the political thing and the political thing is, Been long standing since Trump because he's made a lot of statements in general, uh, and then specific policy moves that you know we just find against our Canadian values. And so we struggle with whether we should say something and how we should manage it. And I think the answer is you have to be careful because first of all, first of all, it's not our country. You know, we we do a lot of business with them and we have a lot at stake there. But it's not really our country, and you know, of course, at, at dinner parties is one thing. But when we're in public, we we have to be careful what we say and what we weigh in on. Um, but so th- when you're this... when you're talking to your clients,
1: yeah. your American clients, I mean, how are you? How are you approaching them? How are you having discussions about your your business over the long term? Is that the focus to to make sure that you're focused on the long term versus what's happening over the you know week to, to week be. or day to day?
0: Try to be. I mean, my business is is one where we create very close relationships with our clients because we're advisors. And so you get to talk to people about a lot of things. And then, so I think you're, you're, you're pointing in, a, in a, an important direction. There's a political and opinion piece about how they manage black lives matter and the overall policy environment and the virus. And then there's a, okay, safety, safety of people and safety of business. And when you think about the safety of people, you sort of say, okay, if my best friend were sick, I wouldn't let them come over and hang out with my kids. And so it's very fair to say that we want, even if they're opening up their economy physically, we don't want to travel there as much. And we would rather them not travel here as much. But they're gonna have to travel here somewhat, and we're gonna have to travel there somewhat. But in terms of planning for the long term, I think if you do business with the US and you successfully do business with the US, and my business, I mean, we've been in business almost 20 years, you know, half my business has been in the US, right? And so we like doing business there, we like spending time there. There's no there's no scenario where we say we're only going to focus on Canadian clients. And so we need to keep that in mind. Over the next few months, I think there are very tangible, practical things that you need to do to make sure that your business remains healthy. So again, you need to think about safety and you need to say, okay, do I really need to visit? Do I really need to have them come visit here even when they're allowed? And is there a way to handle that diplomatically if they think it's okay and I don't? Uh, and then if they're uh, buying goods from me, Um, how could I make sure that I'm gonna get paid? I mean, just like any business today, you need to not Mm -hmm. American business, you know, are they sustainable? Uh and if they're selling goods to me, am I going to be sure of a continuous supply? And if I believe that I have confidence in my sales, but yet my goods are coming from the US, I have to think about pre-building. And that's a that's a pretty complicated uh that's a pretty complicated calculation because then you're betting on one side and you're pre-buying here. And then if you're wrong on your demand uh, and you've pre-bought, then you're, you may be, I'll say, creating the opposite problem. So it's complex, but I would say, you know, the main message is, remember there are friends uh, that may be making decisions that we don't want. And remember that there are friends that both personally, but this is a business show from a business standpoint, we're going to need these people for a long time. And Mm -hmm. so make sure that you manage your relationships in, in a way uh, that reflects that. And we're not talking about China, but China is a similar thing. There are a lot of things we disagree with about China. There are a lot of areas they put us at risk. We're not going to snap our fingers and change all the supply chains and change the fact that we buy toys and clothing from them. And so, you know, everything is temporary. So we just, yeah,
1: I'm sure we'll get to, to the China and supply chain questions on another episode, but I do want to change gears a little bit. Um, This is a topic that we get a ton of questions and have got a ton of questions about over the last few weeks, and that's working from home. And so we've seen a discussion kind of start about um, like Facebook had asked its employees to inform them by the end of the year of where they will be located because they are allowing employees to work from home. But now there's questions of whether compensation will change for employees that are choosing to work at, from a different location, perhaps, uh, you know, picking Peterborough instead of Toronto because of the cost of living is a lot cheaper there than in downtown Toronto. Um, but what advice do you have for companies that are going to be employing, uh, having their employees work from home and what should they do about compensation?
0: Okay. So it's really a two part question. And I think I've said on this show, I've certainly said it elsewhere. I do not believe that our economy is shifting such that people are going to work from home in a very, to a very significant degree. So today, and I do not have the number, I apologize. Let's just say 8% of work hours are work from home before the crisis. Is it possible that that's going to go from 8% to 12% after, even though it's you know 60% now for those that are relevant or 80%? Uh, yes, that's possible. I do not believe that it is efficient for people and productive to all work from home all the time. And so because of that, I wanted to put, start with that because you actually have to separate between people working a little bit from home, uh, first of all, now is temporary anyway, but if they're going to work a little bit from home versus are they going to become a remote worker? And if they're going to work a little bit from home, if they're going to work from home a day or two a week, well, I think you just got to manage that with your workflow and make sure that it's comfortable and make sure that they're productive. And I don't think that requires any change in compensation because I can't, I can't see how that impacts their costs or anything else. If they become a remote worker, it actually does change the game. And I'll tell you why. If they are remote workers, a few things happen. One is they could live at home and have a lot lower costs. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that as an employer, you have the right to take back those costs because if the employee is still still providing the value, then I guess you owe them the value for their work. The challenge becomes when you consider that labor is a commodity like everything else, and it is driven by supply and demand. And what happens is if enough people work from home and their costs go down, that means that a percentage of them will be willing to work for less. And if a percentage of them are willing to work for less, then somebody will take advantage of that. And so when you look at the supply-demand curve, the demand, the, the, the supply curve shifts. And if your competitors take advantage and hire people cheaper because some are willing to, and you say, no, I wanna be fair with my employees, well, your competitors have cheaper employees, then they have cheaper prices and then you get no business. And so I guess
1: I question though, who is willing to work for less? Do people really want, will people want to work for less? I I, I just, I don't, I don't see that happening. For sure. For yeah. sure.
0: I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. I, I live and work in downtown Toronto. If uh, I decided that I was going to work remotely, you know, my wife and I would move to Collingwood and I would sell my expensive house in downtown Toronto and live in a cheaper house in Collingwood. Even if I had to only come in one day a week. And if somebody said, would you give up some salary to have that lifestyle? I can tell you I would. Okay. And it, it's not today if you ask people and you survey them who would like to have a lower salary. It's, <laughs> it's, it's when somebody who made $100,000 and is now out of a job and finds a new job that is work worked from home and it's $80,000. they sort of say, OK, well, should I take it? Can I afford it? They say, well, let's think about it a little bit. And they talk to their spouse and they say, can we afford it? They say, well, actually, you know, we're going to have less this and less this. But once you have work from home, remember, you know, I, I gave up the Collingwood example because once they once I could move to Collingwood, I could also move to Halifax. And I could tell you a nice house in downtown Toronto is a million and a half and more. And a very nice home in Halif- a very nice home in Halifax is three or four hundred thousand dollars. And it's, uh, by the way, just a fantastic place to live. But, you know, <laughs> just thought I'd throw that in. But um, but, you know, once you say work from home, it's you could work truly remotely. And so it's not about fairness. But a lot of business is not about fairness. It's about the law of supply and demand. And I think that rules here. But again, I, I think it's going to be moot because I don't think we're going to have droves and droves of people who suddenly say they want to stay home all the time.
1: Yeah, there was some uh, in the most recent job survey. Um, the numbers were not nearly as high, I think, as as the headlines made them out to be. Um, but before we wrap up the show, I do want to quickly get into um, a final topic. Uh, and that's let's wrap things up by talking about what we started with, which is the reopening um, and the demand levels, because I think there is a concern, even as we do advance to this stage, that demand is not going to be the same. I think of the restaurant industry. Yes, they can, in Ontario, open patios up for the most part, but... It doesn't mean that they're having packed restaurants and and physical distancing is really going to um, create, hamper demand for quite some time and and really who knows how long. So what's your advice for clients that, that are facing drastically declining demand even as they reopen?
0: Well, what's interesting is that there's a difference between are they facing drastically declining demand because people don't want to come or because their capacity is constrained? Because, you know, if you think about, I just want to give an example, which is not, you know, perfectly the one you're asking about, but to set the stage, airlines and hotels would love a situation, to some extent, where the capacity is constrained, because the way it works, uh, in most businesses, and we talked about supply and demand, when your capacity is constrained, your ability to raise price goes up. It's just basic supply and demand. And so in the hotel industry, you know, when you when hotels fill up in a given city, when there's a convention in the city and you book late, the room that was three hundred dollars is now six hundred dollars. And so what's interesting is when you think about a lot of businesses, you could say, well, capacity is less. And so maybe I have to raise my prices a bit because I can. And because I need to, because there are costs, and because my, my capacity is less. As long as raising that price doesn't turn away more demand than your capacity does, you're right. okay. In both cases, you know, the math is such that in many of these services, you would still rather be at full capacity. But as long as you're not raising the price more than, and sorry, and turning away demand more than a capacity is turning away, you're probably fine. That's a very simple, I'll say, numbers only answer. It gets complicated when you have to think about the fact that many businesses, small businesses, services mm-hmm. businesses are loyalty businesses. And what you don't want to do is suddenly say, well, you know what? I only have room for uh, half the haircuts this week. So I'm going to charge double and it's going to be fine because as long as half the people pay double, I'll still have the same revenue. That works in the short term. It does not work over the long term because the people that decided that they uh, don't want to pay double the price, mm-hmm. well, they still they still wanted to get their haircut. And then they went somebody else. And they said, you know what? I kind of like you. And, yeah. and they say, you were nice to me during the crisis and you didn't raise my price. And so I- I'm sorry I don't have an answer that is, you know, do this all the time because like most things, it depends. Um, but I would say uh, in general, I don't think you should stay closed because your capacity is reduced. And I think you should think about how to raise prices in an artful way uh, in a way that won't turn people uh, uh, away for the long term, not mm-hmm. dramatically, in a way that's justified, and most of the time, you could do it by not giving discounts as opposed to by raising
1: prices. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot to still unpack in that topic, but um, we've unfortunately run out of time. The show really does fly by already. So I know uh, we'll have to handle that topic on Thursday. That's it for this episode of Crisis Management. You can rewatch the show on our website or listen to our podcast. Check out Crisis Management on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening.